it was a profound change. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was, a, I, you know, as a as more or less an independent film editor working in Canada. And then I became a Hollywood editor after that. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratize the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is editor Julian Clark. After beginning his career in the world of short films, Julian was the man behind the edit of 2009's highly influential District 9, which rocketed him to the Oscars and onto projects such as Deadpool, The Handmaid's Tale and Terminator Dark Fate. He's the first editor we've had on Red Carpet Rookies, and I can't wait to learn more about his craft. Welcome, Julian. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic, considering the circumstances in the world right now. Very good to hear. Now, before we get started, we've had lots of requests for editors on the show, and I'd love to hear what would you describe it as in your own words? Uh, well, it's it's one of those things that's very difficult, difficult to describe the process until you've actually been through it. But uh, it is definitely a kind of a companion process to writing in the movie process, right? The screenplay is really just a kind of a template for the movie. The movie doesn't become a movie until it is edited, right? It's kind of a template and then raw material. So the to me, the the actual movie, it being written into movie form is the editing process, right? You're not just executing the screenplay. All these little tiny decisions are made about the performance, about the structure, about the rhythm, about the tone, and that's where it becomes what it is, you know, for better or worse. Fantastic. Now, to take it back right to the beginning, I like to ask each one of my guests, what did your parents do and did that affect your career choices later in life? I come from an incredibly academic, accomplished family. Uh, so my dad is a geophysicist glaciologist who was part of the was part of the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change that got the shared Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. So he's a real, really accomplished scientist. My mother is a has a history PhD and writes mystery novels. And then she stopped writing mystery novels and now is kind of involved in a little opera company. Uh, my stepmother is a anthropologist who's received the Order of Canada. My stepfather is a art gallery curator. <laughs> uh, so anyway, very intellectual and academic family. I'm one of the only people in my family that doesn't have a PhD. So anyway, I think what I got from it was, you know, I, I'm, I was very interested in art and in ideas and not at all pragmatic, you know? <laughs> I was like interested in doing kind of something that, you know, was creative and like was not interested in kind of pursuing money or any kind of these things. I wanted to do something, you know, in, in the realm of ideas and creativity. Uh, that's sort of what I got from my family. No pressure from then then. Did you ever feel the pull to do that at all? Or was were they supportive in you following your artistic dreams? Well, I was, you know, I was a very lazy child. So I think they were just really happy when I found something that I was passionate about and kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm now a real workaholic. Uh, so I think they were just very happy that, oh, he's found something that he's like totally diving into and is doing well at it. So it wasn't kind of like a, they were trying to steer me towards anything. They just wanted me to sort of find something that I was, you know, really into. So how was it that you first came into contact with filmmaking then in your younger years? 
Uh, I mean, you know, just obviously like everyone else, like as a fan, right? Like probably the movie Aliens. I've seen that movie probably like 50 or 60 times. We've just like come home from school, pop on Aliens and like, you know, quote along with all like the Bill Paxton lines and stuff like that. So there was just definitely like a lot of watching Terminator 2, watching Aliens, watching these kind of movies over and over again as a teenager. And as I got older, kind of getting into like, you know, Godfather and Apocalypse Now and all these kind of like, you know, uh, more cerebral and artistic 2001, these kinds of movies. And then I kind of got excited about like, oh, what you can kind of really, not just as kind of like a nerd who's excited about science fiction, but like then excited about it as a kind of art form, what, like what you can do with it. And so then when I was going to university and they had film classes, I was like, well, obviously I'm going to take film classes. That's going to be fun, right? It's a lot funner writing an essay about like, you know, a movie than it is like writing it about like, you know, Don Quixote or something like that. Am I right that you didn't actually go first towards editing though at film school yeah i mean i think i mean i imagine that most people i think they go like i want to be a director right (laughs) because it's like i mean the director for you know it's like we've kind of assigned the director sort of authorship of the movie which and they are kind of the author but it is such a collaborative process as well but when you're coming to it just as kind of a a fan and someone aspiring to the craft i think people naturally are drawn to directing just because that's that's when we talk about movies it all kind of revolves around the director and so once i kind of like got into film school and i tried directing and and you know went through the editing process in my first short film as a director i was like oh man the editing part of the process is so much more rewarding than than the shooting part i mean the shooting part especially when you're working in low budget world right is just filled with like failure and compromise and things going wrong. And uh, and there's all this kind of thing, you know, about like, you know, keeping the morale of the crew up and logistics and all that kind of stuff. And I hated all that stuff. So to me, it was like the creative outlet of the process. There was so much more of the creative part of, a part of the process in editing than there was in directing. There's a lot of misery involved in directing. There's a lot of creativity as well, but there was like a lot of downside that I saw. I saw, oh, the I think the sort of ratio to creativity, the shitty stuff you have to go through on editing is much smaller, much smaller. So, so I was immediately kind of drawn to that. And then I kind of became, uh, you know, the next year in film school, then I, then I chose editing and I just started editing all my sort of film school friends, uh, projects and stuff like that. I just became, you know, I think probably every film school has like the one person who's kind of like that. I'll edit that for you. I'll edit that for you. That was that guy. When you look back on it, what is your opinion on the film school routes? Because it's something that lots of people wrestle with whether to go or not. Well, I don't think there's one route. I mean, certainly I think it, it worked for me in that I don't think it's like that you can't know what you're doing without film school, but it gives you a network, right? A network of people that are uh, at, a, at a kind of similar level entering the industry at the same time as you. So like when I entered the Vancouver industry, I was in Vancouver at the time with those people. I, I kind of like did projects for them. They introduced me to other people they met. And so I had this whole kind of kind of world of people that I could kind of enter the industry with and kind of make contacts with. And it just felt like a very natural process. Now, if you're an extremely extroverted person and you just like go to like, you know, independent film events and you meet people, I mean, you could probably get the same network out of just kind of really putting yourself out there. But the process was just very organic going through film school and kind of you just inherit a network like that unless you're, you know, a total jerk or something like that. So, so yeah, so I think that's what I really got out of it. Less so than like what specifically I was taught just kind of like making those connections. From what I can see after your film school days, you got thrown deep into the world of short films. And I'd love to hear, would you say that was quite an education for you that gave you a basis really in different genres? Because from what I can see, on one end, you're doing kind of classic horror shorts. And then you've also got titles such as Barbie Fairytopia. Well, that's a feature, actually. (laughs) That's a feature. I just wanted to bring it up. 
It's made by the, there's this, I don't know if you remember this cartoon reboot from like a thousand years ago. Anyway, it was a very early 3D animated <laughs> cartoon made by this company at the time, Mainframe in Vancouver. So they were early pioneers of 3D animation. And they and they had this uh, relationship with Mattel where they made essentially direct to DVD, like, you know, kind of like very, not Pixar, right? You know, like done for like maybe a million or $2 million, kind of like direct to DVD kind of adaptations of these different Mattel properties. And so like, you know, and that was just another thing where it was like, Oh, you know, a guy edited a short film for, he's like, I need some money. So he like became a producer of one of those Mattel firms. And he's like, Hey, you want to cut this? And I'm like, sure. I mean, I think when you're starting out, especially if you're not in a place like Los Angeles, where there's not just this massive, you know, spring of work, you're, I was really a jack of all trades. So it's kind of like I did corporate videos. I did actor demo reels. I did short films. And yes, of many different genres. I did documentaries. I did that 3D animation. I did reality TV. So it wasn't like a kind of thing where you could kind of go, well, I only edit this kind of stuff, whatever, where you could be kind of like, you know, high and mighty about, you know, the kind of work you would do would just be like, great, someone wants to hire me. And it seemed and it might be okay. So, you know, and so, but that gave me a very dynamic resume. So it, it kind of widens your cutting skills as well. So it's not all bad, but eventually, you know, you do want to kind of refine and define yourself by, you know, excellent work or whatever. So it was a good starting point for sure. Do you think young editors, it would be a good advice to throw themselves slightly into that generalist mindset in the beginning and then refine themselves from that? Well, I don't, I certainly don't want to, I don't think you should be waiting around for someone to be handing you like an Oscar movie or something like that. That's just not going to happen. Right. So yeah, you got to go out there and you just got to kind of start working and, and, you know, even working on something bad, uh, you know, I've made contacts from working on things bad that then led to stuff that was good or whatever. And, Hmm. and you learn from working on stuff that's bad. And, you know, there's a, just a basic competency, like you get better at it making something bad be passable, that's really hard. There should be an editing award for that. Uh, so absolutely. Now, of course, eventually you have to transcend working on stuff that's bad and work on stuff that's actually good. And if you work on stuff that's bad for too long, then that can define you. And, you know, I worked on an Uva Bull movie. So, <laughs> I mean, I understand. There's a, there's, and, you know, there's certainly people in Vancouver who worked on many Uva Bull movies, and then maybe they got defined by those movies. So it's a balancing act, I think. You know, it's like in the beginning, I don't think you should be turning your nose up at things. But then eventually, too, you have to then be as you build a, a body of work, you have to be careful about how you're defining yourself. On this podcast, one of the things I really like hearing about is turning points. And it seems to me that you mentioned working on bad work for only a short amount of time there. One of the big turning points in your life, from what I can see, please fact check me if I'm wrong, is when District 9 came into your life, marking a bit of a change. Could you talk about how you came onto that project and how it then did affect your later life? Yeah, I mean, you're, that's it was a profound change. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was, a, I, you know, as a more or less an independent film editor working in Canada, and then I became a Hollywood editor after that. So it was a pretty like a light switch getting turned on that project. So how it came about, you know, and this is kind of, I guess, the, you know, the kind of ties back into what we were just talking about, you know, right when I was starting out, you know, just after the sort of, I did an era of short films that lasted about two years where that was mostly what I was editing. And then, you know, one of those short films turned into editing a feature. And then there was also kind of like, I cut two features that that year, actually. And the other feature was like this $80,000 movie shot on mini DV. And it was uh, the director had been editing it himself and was just kind of like not quite coming together. So he wanted someone else to kind of cut it for him. So like, 
there's no money. He was just like, Hey, you want to cut this for me? And I was just like excited about, you know, trying to get more feature credits and like transition out of just editing shorts. So I was like, sure. And I, so I cut it, this movie called come together and, uh, and, you know, went to some festivals and stuff like that. People liked it. And, but the connection I got from that, there was this other guy who worked on it, Clinton Shorter, who was uh, the film composer. And he was another guy kind of like, he was a composer assistant and he was trying to transition and being a composer in his own right, much like I was trying to transition into cutting features. And we, he did a great job on come together. And so like, I recommended him for some other features that I, you know, cut after that brought him on. And so we were kind of just recommending each other back and forth for jobs because we both kind of liked each other. And we both thought that, you know, this guy's good, uh, you know, I'll, you know, like, why not? Um, so he was friends just socially with Neil Blomkamp, who lives in, in Vancouver. And Neil at that time was doing kind of music videos and commercials and that kind of stuff. So he had no kind of editor, feature editor relationship. And so when Neil, you know, when District 9 was finally kind of gearing up to happen, Neil kind of like didn't have all these kind of, you know, people that necessarily, you know, you know relationships. So he kind of asked his friends, hey, you know, like, uh, do you know a, a Vancouver editor? Because at that point, we were kind of planning to post a bunch in Vancouver. And so uh, Clinton suggested me. And so, you know, I chatted with Neil. We got along. And it kind of just happened from there. And so it kind of came from that working on that little $80,000 film that, you know, I, that someone, you know, put their neck out for me to recommend me to work on this project. Now, I think some other things need to be kind of factored into like how this opportunity happened. Besides the fact that I, you know, whatever someone recommended me in right time, right place was that, you know, this was a very unique project in that, you know, it was made for about $35 million, but a huge amount of that money was going into the visual effects budget. Like when you watch District 9 now, it looks like an 80 or $90 million movie, right? So it's like, there was not a lot of money left over once that VFX were being spent. So, you know, they shot in South Africa, that was cheaper. And then I think a lot of the key crew members were like making like much less than you would normally on a Hollywood movie. And so I don't think there was money to hire like a real A-lister either, right? They kind of needed someone who was kind of like, you know, young and scrappy. That's kind of what they could afford. And then lastly, you know, Peter Jackson was the producer on it. And Peter Jackson lives in New Zealand. And even though he's kind of like, you know, a huge Hollywood force, he's also kind of like, I think he kind of sees himself still as kind of a Hollywood outsider, right? Like yeah. the people he uses on his shows, a lot of them are like New Zealanders. He's not hiring like tons and tons of like, you know, Hollywood types or whatever. And so he was kind of also kind of cool with Neil hiring kind of these like unknown quantities on his film. So I got hired, Trent Oplock, the DOP, who kind of, I don't know if he had, you know, Trent had shot any features at that point. He was doing kind of commercials and stuff. Trent's now gone on to do like Avengers Endgame. So, you know, he's had sort of crazy wow. come out of that. Uh, and Clinton came and Clinton got hired onto it. Clinton's gone on to do like tons of TV in the US. Uh, and Charlotte Copley, who was like not even really an actor, you know, he kind of Charlotte acted in like his own shorts and stuff like that. He was like more of like a producer or something in South Africa. So all these kind of people, all these kind of kids really from, uh, you know, not with Hollywood pedigree were kind of brought onto that movie in this way that like doesn't happen very often. And the post was being based in Vancouver of this larger project also doesn't usually really happen. So it was really this confluence of crazy events. So it's not like one of those things where you can go, here's the recipe and I can pass this on to others to replicate because I just don't think it would replicate. I think the, the takeaway in terms of things you can control is build relationships, don't burn bridges, be the guy that people want to recommend for opportunities, right? And then, you know, if a lightning bolt does strike, you're more likely to person who's the receiver of the lightning because you've built all these like good connections, right? Uh, so, I mean, that's the, I guess, the proactive part of it. The rest, you know, and the rest of it is really like, you know, right time, right place, lightning striking the ground, you know? 
Definitely. Do you think that that wide variety of different types of media you cut before corporate videos, music videos, etc., prepared you well for District 9 in the sense that you've done some documentary and then some narrative, because obviously it's a bit of a conflation of both in quite an unusual way. Yeah, well, I mean, I think having worked with documentary and having worked with improv, those were both kind of invaluable. Because I think uh, if you were used to kind of just working with stuff that's very scripted, then, I mean, District 9 was really overwhelming to edit. But if you hadn't dealt with kind of improv and kind of and, and kind of creating structure, you know, that you have to do from documentary, there wasn't a real aspect to that in District 9 in, in sections. And so, yeah, that definitely was kind of like, it was a useful a, a useful aspect. I mean, cutting documentary, that's one of the hardest things to do, for sure. When Especially when you're not, you know, you're not working on a kind of a TV format one where it's just kind of like, here's a bunch of stuff, come up with like a cohesive narrative with this. That's like, it's a lot of work. So, uh, so yeah, that was a useful, that was a useful skill to be able to go back to. Yeah, because I'd like to ask you your opinion on that phrase, which fits well to the idea of documentary because they often say they find it in the edit. That phrase, a film is written or indeed a documentary three times in the script on camera and then in the edit. Would you subscribe to that as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that I mean, I think you can say that about any movie, but especially true for documentary. I mean, I think a lot of that, you know, on, on some things, you know, they coat they, you know, I mean, I think that the generous documentary directors often, you know, uh, often give their kind of uh, editors like, you know, producer or co-director credits because, you know, those the, the job, it's that that is such a vital aspect aspect of how you form those things, even more so than, you know, when you're working with something that's scripted. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, they, they edit those things for years sometimes. They're, it's an incredibly labor of love that uh, documentaries editors go through. For the people who are listening who are totally brand new to all of this kind of information, when you're sitting in the booth for something like District 9, you've mentioned the VFX. Could you explain what you're actually looking at and how much imagination is coming into it of seeing where the things are going to be in exactly like that, the aliens. Right. Well, I mean, I'd, I've obviously, I'd worked with a little bit of VFX on the kind of projects prior to that, you know, where you be like a couple shots here and there and this is and that. But this was just like a whole other level. At District Town, we had something like 700 shots or something like that, which now, based on what, you know, the average Hollywood movie has, doesn't seem like a lot, but it seemed like a lot of the time to me. But, and then, you know, in terms of how you deal with it and what the process is, it really depends on kind of, it's a kind of a case by case basis. When it came to kind of like the space people, the aliens, we often had a kind of an actor there on stilts for height reference. Um, and they would be, Charlotte would be like, you know, doing his improv. And the guy, this the, this guy, Jason Cope, who played almost all the aliens, he would be improvising back in English. <laughs> Right. So we would have something to edit with that. Once you had settled on something that, you know, okay, this is solid now, then you turn it over and months go by and, and it get, eventually gets replaced, you know, with, with a three dimensional alien. And the choices of, there's a lot of pressure in terms of knowing that that stuff's going to stay because each of those alien shots was like 60, 70, $80,000. Right. Jeez. So like, and I, you know, I, you know, I'm making probably not that much more, you know, I wasn't making that much in that. So it didn't take too many shots before it's like, oh, that's way more than my salary now just for these like couple shots or whatever, right? So it's a lot of pressure in terms of like, you don't want to waste, right? A little bit of waste is inevitable. And so there's sort of a lot of sort of thinking about, okay, how solid is this? Can we turn this over now? And then you still want to give them enough time for it to look really good. So it's this thing where it's like, you don't want to turn it too early and then it will change and you waste the money, but you'd also want don't turn it over too late where then they're going to do a shitty job and it's not going to look good. But at least, you know, in that case, creatively, we had something to kind of like respond to with the uh, space people or aliens. Now, the really hard one 
one was the exosuit sequence because that one, it was like, you know, much, much bigger than a person. So a person reference just didn't make sense there. So really it was mostly just a lot of empty shots or sometimes empty shots with another person reacting. And then every once in a while, someone would wander in with a large stick. You go, it's this tall. <laughs> and so I, you know, we would kind of chop this stuff together. And then I had this like a, you know, what they call like a turntable of the exosuit model right? Where it's this kind of thing that's essentially kind of rotating as if it's standing on a record player uh, version of the 3D model of the exosuit. And I would just kind of like, you know, we had one on green, so I would just kind of get a freeze frame of it, key out the green and go plop it into these shots. And then like a really bad, like Monty Python animation, I would just kind of key frame it around to be going, <laughs> it's going to left to right. It stops. It raises its gun, you know, like really terrible stuff. But at least it would be kind of giving an idea of like its screen direction and like, well, I think this shot can work in two and a half seconds and that kind of stuff. So terrible for kind of screening and immersion, but a little, uh, at least giving you an idea of what the intentions are, like a really rough storyboard or something. And so that was kind of the process. Uh, but it was, it's pretty hair raising when you're, these shots are so expensive and there's nothing there. And you're kind of like, do I want a medium or a close up or a, it's pretty hard. And we didn't use, you know, a lot of the way they kind of get away that around that stuff is using previs and that kind of stuff, right? Previs or postvis where we have, you know, these mm -hmm. kind of cartoon video game cartoon versions of the kind of action sequences but uh but neil's not really a fan of those i think partly they cost a lot and partly he just kind of likes things to be a little more raw and improvised and kind of decided you know in the moment in the location and so so we didn't have this sort of like blueprint print map of the sequence so that kind of made it you know more challenging but i think you know the end result is when you watch his action sequences they're much more kind of raw and real and kind of fresh feeling than these ones that are super choreographed right you can really tell the difference between between kind of sort of these Marvel type action sequences, which are beautiful and great, but like seem very, very planned. And these ones that are kind of feel a little more raw and spontaneous that, that Neil does. It sounds incredibly challenging. And one of the things I'm interested in is how the genre affects the edit. And one would imagine that editing District 9 was quite different to editing Deadpool. But it sounds like from something you've said a minute ago that maybe the improv element of some of it would have made it easier. Is that the case? Yeah, well, the I mean, Deadpool is a different type of improv. It's very smart how they kind of do the improv in Deadpool, where it really is kind of like the kind of narrative stuff is pretty much all scripted, and you just you just read the words, and then as soon as you get to the funny stuff, then you have like fifteen versions of it, right? That Ryan or the writers have come up with, and so it was really kind of like a, a lot of it was just kind of like auditioning different jokes and how many jokes you'd want in a scene, right? But versus the sort of District Nine thing, which is like literally here's the general goal of the scene. Now it's like, and it's maybe two pages and then you get eight minutes of like Charlteau, like fucking, you know, going off. <laughs> and you have to then like, and it's all great, but you have to boil it down to like two minutes and accomplish the goals and like not have the blocking fall apart because, you know, if characters are wandering around to different parts of the set, you know, then you're like, how do I get them from here to here? Right? So <laughs> the Deadpool one was like a little more like surgical, you know, where you like, you know, improv, like when the character lands here and they do the joke, then we'll like, you know, there's a whole bunch of different options. But I'd say one of the similar aspects to those two things is they both have this thing where they're like, they're kind of doing more than one thing at once. And I like movies that do this. They're very challenging, but uh, I'm very drawn to them, which is like, there's a real comedic, I wouldn't say that uh, District 9 is a comedy, but there's a real comedic aspect to it, right? The biggest yeah, yeah. character, if you have a warped enough sense of humor, is very, very funny. You know, like when he's doing that, like burning the eggs and he's like saying it sounds like popcorn. Like to me, that's like hilarious, right? It's horrible and hilarious. The emotion and the action in the world feel very real, right? So you're 
still immersed in the reality of the world and the stakes of the drama and the coolness of the action. And Deadpool's trying to do the same thing, right? Where the Deadpool character is like very, very funny and then there's some hilarious stuff in it, but then he's fucking angry. He's on a mission for revenge and he really loves his girlfriend. And, you know, it's kind of a gritty world. And so we're trying to do that same kind of thing where it's like very funny and entertaining, but we're kind of still kind of trying to ground it and keep it real and keep it cool. It looks really easy when you've kind of pulled it off, but it's actually quite hard. It's very easy to kind of drift into things being too broad or too over the top. And then suddenly like it's funny, but it's like the reality is all messed up. And suddenly the action's not cool and the world's not cool. And it's less emotional because you're not believing in the reality of the story. So that's kind of an interesting thing of like the sort of tone of when you're oscillating between something that's dramatic and comedic. I guess it's like the classic tragedy comedy, you know. Right. Yeah. Play. And then there's the Shakespeare plays that have a little bit of both. Right. So that's kind of what you're trying to we're, we're trying to do that. We're trying to cast both worlds a little bit in those movies. Definitely. I can imagine that working on Deadpool with all those improv lines, it was probably an exercise in killing your darlings with loads of them. Were there any ones that didn't get in that you had a particular favorite? Oh, man, you're asking me to kind of like rewind time here a little bit. I don't know specifically of, you know, there might be like alts. There are some pretty funny alts that we cut out. Uh, you know, alt line reads of things where it's like, oh, that's funny, but that's also funny. Oh man, which one do we go for here? But uh, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can pull them out of deep memory <laughs> to recite them to you. Did it ever get too close to the line? Because it famously became, I think, it was the, the hot, highest grossing R-rated movie ever. Were there moments where Tim, who we've also interviewed on the podcast? Um, was like, no, we're not going that far. It's, that's too much. Uh, well, I think Tim, I think to his credit, from the get-go, kind of think he knew that the script's really funny, Ryan is hilarious, and like what I'm kind of bringing to this is kind of like keeping both feet on the ground in a way. So it wasn't like one of those things where they swung so outlandishly in what they got that it was very hard to bring it down to earth. And Ryan also has, a, I don't know, this is a sort of interesting thing with casting where he's very good at doing things that are bonkers, but making you believe them, right? And that's something that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are funny, but then it's funny, but it doesn't feel, it feels like an SNL skit, a sketch, right? Where you don't buy it. Like you laugh, mm. but it doesn't feel real. But he'll make you believe that he did that insane thing. So yeah, it wasn't like I think that we were like way off in some sort of Adam Sandler territory or something like that with it. But there were points where you kind of like, for instance, uh, we had like more comedy and stuff in the script club scene, which is where he's going, like he's got up his courage to like finally, you know, see his girlfriend again. And then she gets, you know, he chickens out and she gets kidnapped. And so it is kind of like, it's an important dramatic and emotional part in the sort of, you know, structure of the movie. And when we had a bunch of jokes in there, they were funny, but they kind of really stepped on the emotion and the tension. And so it was just kind of one of those things that, you know what, we pulled this out, then suddenly the, the dramatic aspects now are more important. And there's no absence of laughs in this movie. So it's like you're just kind of getting insecure thinking that you need to laugh everywhere, right? And, and another interesting part was, you know, the torture dungeon has its funny moments, but it is pretty traumatizing too. We're in this torture dungeon for quite a while. It seems pretty grim there. And then in the end, he's like graphically impaled. Right. And then in the original structure of it, we actually had like a comedy scene right after that scene where he's impaled almost. Right. Like he emerges from the ashes, then a comedy scene. And it, the comedy scene was hilarious and no one was laughing because they were like basically traumatized still by the impalement. And so in the reshoots, we kind of added an extra scene in there just to kind of let you settle down back more, recover a little bit from the impalement. And then suddenly we got the laughs again in the, in the following scene. That was kind of more the mission where it's kind of pulling some stuff everywhere to make sure, you know, the dramatic stuff worked. And then kind of like when the kind of tone had these radical shifts, finding a way to kind of soften the landing sometimes so you could kind of go back and forth between the more serious stuff and the comedy stuff. 
Speaking of traumatizing, I recently watched Handmaid's Tale, which is quite a departure from the shows we've spoken about so far. Did you find it as traumatizing to to work on? And was, I think it was in part because I was a man and did Reed Murano push for that feeling, do you think? What do you know? Well, I mean, I think if you read the novel, the novel's pretty traumatizing too. So I think we wanted to make a faithful adaptation, right? Uh, faithful to the tone. Obviously, we took some, uh, deviated from kind of some of the story stuff. And yeah, I mean, a lot of our reference points were pretty grim, you know, dark cons film festivals type type references. So yeah, we were going for something that was hard hitting and unflinching. And I think, you know, there's like a current of black comedy to the voiceover and to the character. And that's the little tiny little bit of a life raft maybe you offer the audience to help kind of get through it. But yeah, I mean, it is pretty punishing. But then I think when you do stuff like that, that's, you know, you have to be worthy of it, I guess. You can't, you know, if you make something punishing and then it's not great, then people just kind of go like, oh, what are you doing? This is like, I don't want to watch this. Mm. And maybe you're being exploitive or something, you know? So I think the fact that Elizabeth Moss is so fantastic and Reed Morano, you know, used to be a DOP. So just the imagery she got was just gorgeous and the production design is gorgeous. So just the whole execution of it, I thought was so good that we are allowed to kind of make something kind of unflinching because of the quality of the material and kind of uh, how well it was done. Um, So I think that then it kind of worked for people. So to change tact a little bit in our last few minutes here, I like to talk about the future of the industry on the podcast and lots of younger people listen to it. Given that now lots of people in the first world, pretty much everybody can have access to relatively high level editing tools for low prices. How do you think people can stand out amongst the noise That's a good question. I mean, I came of age right at Final Cut Pro version one, right? And I don't even know if I would be doing this Mm. job if that hadn't happened. Uh, Because before that, to get access to the equipment, you needed like 30, 40 grand of hardware to have an editing system. And then suddenly Final Cut came, right? Now everyone hates Final Cut, of course. But at the time, it was pivotal that you could spend a couple grand buy, buy a Mac and have that software. And like that allowed me to just become an editor and do it. And now, of course, that notion is caught on like wildfire. And there's now like, you know, everyone's an editor now. So yeah, how do you differentiate yourself? Well, um, I mean, I guess the uh, there's sort of like the Neil Blomkamp group, which is like you make some crazy impressive short film and you put, put it online. Certainly, you know, if you're the editor on one of those things, if you make something that goes seriously viral, that can't hurt. Um, but in terms of like the way I kind of clawed my way up, I'm not sure if that's now maybe that that route might be totally, you know, polluted with tons of competition of people all trying to do the same thing. I'm not sure. I mean, I guess it's also kind of figuring out like there's this world of like kind of content people for YouTube versus film and television and streaming and all that. And they're kind of very separate, but obviously the crafts are similar. And so it's sort of like, how do you differentiate yourself for film and TV versus being like another person on YouTube kind of making content for that world? I don't know if I have the answer to that. I guess it's making something of quality. Definitely. Now to wrap it up on Red Carpet Rookies, I like to ask each one of my guests a little quick fire questions round in an ode to in the actor's studio so just think of whatever comes into your head julian and say it if that's all right with you all right are you ready i'm ready number one what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given don't think so much number two do you have a favorite film that one changes i guess i'll just put apocalypse now out there to be simple and the second part of that is if our listeners were to watch one of your pieces of work tonight, what do you think they should watch? Which one are you most proud of, I guess? I'll, I'll, I'll say District 9. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day and edit? I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? Uh, if I was a better writer, I'd write. And if I was a better musician, I'd be a composer. 
as a second part to that question, just for you, lots of our guests say they would want to be an editor. Why do you think that might be? Uh, I mean, I guess it's one of those things that you can just buy a computer and buy the software and just kind of do it yourself. So, it, you know, a lot of the other aspects of filmmaking, you, you need an actor or you, you need like stuff to build if you're a production designer. I mean, even as a composer, you need like kind of like a lot of bells and whistles to kind of like uh, to uh, be able to, you know, expensive synthesizers and that kind of stuff. So I think it's editing is one of those kind of things that you you don't actually need much to do it. Uh, and so you can kind of dabble in it. I guess it's a way in for people now in a way that it didn't used to be, uh, a way into the filmmaking process. They can kind of go, oh, this is cool. I can do this. That would be my theory. Sure. Number five, if you could work with one person living or dead, who would it be? I have to think about that because, you know, like there's definitely people that you admire and you go, oh, they make great movies, but then you hear that they're crazy, right? (laughs) So it's like, I try not to work with crazy people. So like, who's someone like brilliant, but also really nice? Well, that's a good mindset because that means you think that you're going to work with them. So that's good rather than just be like, oh, you know, maybe. (laughs) It's like, you know, like Steven Soderbergh, he seems like he's maybe not an asshole. (laughs) Let's go with that. Soderbergh's in. Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? Crime and Punishment. And finally, oh, that, that was, you know, your, your uh, academic parents will be proud of that one. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? I'd thank as few people as possible so I could get off the stage quickly. Spoken like a true editor there, Julian. That was lovely. And thank you so much for that. With that, our time must sadly close. Thank you so much to Julian Clark for joining us today. Editing is one of the most requested crafts we have to delve into. And it was brilliant to hear about your process and the mind behind the cut. Thank you, Julian. My pleasure. I hope it was interesting. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. And of course, any support via our Patreon page or merch is amazing. So if you'd like to help, please do head to redcarpetrookies.com and follow the links. If you'd like regular updates of what's going on, you can also follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook or RC Rookies Pod on Twitter. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.